Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 297, and I had a conversation with Alicia Silberg, fascinating woman. I went over to her house and we sat and discussed for a couple of hours her history and her vision her energy and enthusiasm and passion and mind are an exciting uh, combination to be around. Really stellar human being. Uh, This episode was recorded mostly outside. So uh, given the technology I'm working with, you're going to hear birds and an occasional lawnmower, things like that. When the lawnmowers were getting a little out of control, we moved inside and her bird Banksy was making himself known. There's a lot of extraneous sound, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this was an incredible conversation. The good news is I'm working on finding a new podcast space. I'm, I'm working hard at that. Right now I'm still sitting in my, my closet amongst the tank tops and t-shirts, <laughs> but that won't do. You can't have somebody over to record in your underwear drawer. You know what I mean? So I'm working on that. Bear with me. Alicia was born in South Africa. She grew up during uh, apartheid. Uh, her father passed away when she was nine years old. He was an incredible influence on her as well as her grandfather. And she considers herself to have been an entrepreneur from age five. She tells a story about that on the show. I'm just going to read a little bio on her. It's, it's, a, it's wild, honestly. <laughs> She's a multi-industry, self-made entrepreneur, statistician, and data scientist. She's an actuary, uh, market specialist, wealth manager, alternative <laughs> asset specialist. She's a mathematician, seed stage technology investor. Uh, she invests in startups addressing global challenges via beneficial artificial intelligence, analytics, business automation, financial technology, health technology, life science, robotics. Oh my goodness. She is a UN Women Empower Women Global Champion for Women's Empowerment and Entrepreneurship, a multi-international award-winning entrepreneur, inspiring role model and businesswoman of the year, educational media entrepreneur and innovator, and social advocate in the realms of technology, entrepreneurship, startup investing, diversity, global cooperation, and women's empowerment. She has been referred to as one of the greatest visionaries and change makers working today. Is that not a mouthful? All this and more, really. I mean, just a cool chick, to be honest. Funny and excitable and hyper-minded. You know, her mind was going a million miles an hour. Uh, She's so excited about what she's working on and doing and uh i i loved it i loved the conversation i loved her and it was it was a blast hanging out with her for a couple hours and digging into that awesome brain and uh yeah just a really good time okay i want to talk about uh book burnings book bannings that have been happening across the united states i am just flabbergasted by that notion and all i can say is read, keep reading, read all the books you can. If you're a young person and you come across a book, read it, read it, read it. Just keep reading the books that 
that the these people want to burn and ban are incredible books from my childhood and will be incredible books in yours. Uh, don't let them tell you that you don't get to educate your mind and expand your mind. Books are best friends. They're adventures. They're other worlds. They're sensibilities. They're, of course, education, expansion. They're the universe. Don't give up on books. Keep reading. Keep reading. Okay, in other news, the usual stuff, of course. Social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Facebook and Instagram. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, can be found on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can email me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out SusanRuth.com and you can join the mailing list and I'll send you mailers every once in a while telling you about the things I'm up to. Also on SusanRuth.com, you will find my music, my artwork, interviews that have been done with me where I'm the subject. If you're into music, you can find my music on iTunes, Amazon Music, those kinds of places. Under Susan Ruth, my most recent album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is up there along with a couple other records. On HeyHumanPodcast.com, you will find lots of information about the show, as well as the links page. Everybody I have on the show gets their own links section, and Alicia is no different. You can find her Twitter and Instagram, and a lot of the stuff she references in our conversation. And they'll all be there in one happy pile for you to do a deep dive. Support Hey Human and keep it ad-free by going to heyhumanpodcast.com and clicking on the contribute button. And there you can make a donation. Every bit helps and it's much appreciated. Again, a noisy background here and there. Endure with us and please, you know, come for the content. It's what happens when you do an outdoor recording. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care of each other. Be well. Be kind. And stay safe out there. Yeah? All right, here we go. Alicia Silberg, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Our mutual friend Brad loves you and said such wonderful things and said this woman has had such a life. And uh, it sounded perfect to, to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. And we're here at your beautiful home. There's lovely dogs and ducks and people <laughs> on the canal. It's really quite something, very picturesque. How long have you lived here? Just under six months. Yeah. I'm very grateful. Living in LA is like a dream. Like it's a, it's a dream come true. And it started a long time ago. As I say, before I was even born, my dad lived here and he loved it. And now I get to embrace it. Let's talk about where you started. You were born in South Africa? In Pretoria. Um, feels like a lifetime ago it was very dusty I don't know why I remember Pretoria being so hot and dusty I think one of the greatest achievements Pretoria had was that Elon Musk was born um, very nearby to where I grew up and and so yeah there's hope for all of us coming from Pretoria <laughs> I think you've done all right for yourself thank you <laughs> <laughs> tell me about childhood what was it like um, besides dusty <laughs> and hot very and hot, hot. and um, I think I, I was an born entrepreneur and a dreamer and um, I always believed in in my heart that the sky was the limit literally 
like I, I thought anything was possible and there was difficulty of course I think a lot of difficulty but um, my will and re we were talking about books my obsession with reading and learning and I played the cello and I played the piano so I had some incredible experiences and I had some incredible mentors was this a family uh, belief system or was this something you came bursting into the world with it came from my dad like my dad came to South Africa with the clothes on their backs literally and um, was very appreciative of finding a sanctuary so they would have come to the US but at the time it was 1929 so no one mm. was too keen on coming to the US um, with a financial crisis and um, he believed anything was possible he believed that literally he was a dreamer I think he his family wasn't so into the dreaming and they were kind of negative about all, all of his dreaming and they went to you know feet on the ground and just like be very down to earth be very practical we've lost everything you know like just keep your head down and he was like this renegade and now I'm like the queen of the misfits and the renegades you know like just like like <laughs> go for it and um, I think I learned a lot from him like I learned to 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 believe in myself and to believe in others so I've always believed in um, inspiring stories and people like you like where I, I'm surrounded I don't know if it's my energy I don't know what it is but I get to hang out with the coolest people in the world and I get to call it a job so. I think like attracts like and I think misfits recognize other misfits <laughs> right <laughs> aliens recognize other aliens you were uh, I read on on some article that you were close with your grandmother as well um, grandfather more than my grandmother oh. so my grandfather was um, a mathematician came from oh, the UK grandfather yes and uh, I, I think that's where he really taught me to to love maths in a way that would like numbers would dance. But you're a girl, exactly. <gasps> Imagine! <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? I'm a girl, and I like pretty clothes, like the blouse you're wearing, and I like maths. Oh my god! <laughs> the sky is gonna fall down. <laughs> so yes, uh, he taught me to like add pages of numbers, and he taught me like. To fall in love with it like to truly fall in love with it i never realized what a gift that was like i never realized that something like that would be with me for the rest of my life and it would like we were talking about art we were talking about music that love that relationship would play into because it's a universal language mm -hmm. and it would play into all these different avenues that if someone hadn't taken the trouble to expose me to it i would never have truly been able to appreciate many things that like like when you show me a beautiful artwork there's so much more to it than just you know like what you're showing me like it, as i say the maths played a big role in me understanding the world from a much more meaningful and deeper place do you think it grounded you as well since you are a dreamer are there, unless you're talking about theoretical maths i feel like it's a very grounding science you are wise yes very much so very 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 much so and even now when i talk to founders or when i talk to like women for example building companies i always try and incorporate the like practicality and the groundedness of the maths in the dreaming because it gives you that like foundation that you can build on where it's something very practical and you can see the results because mm -hmm. it's like like i have a book there um richard Feynman's. um <gasps> Feynman. so, there you Love. go okay so one of my first crushes <laughs> there you go okay oh, you get it like just done you, <laughs> you know we sound like two complete nerds but you get it like the idea of the practicality meeting the dreaming, mm -hmm. and that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I 
discovered his books at a, at a young age and just lost my mind. My dad's a nuclear physicist, and he actually had a class with Feynman when he was at MIT. No way! Yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh my god, like, you are so cool! Can I touch you? I want to meet your dad too. Yeah, oh, he's great. He's a character and a half. Um, <laughs> did you see? So were you in South Africa? How old were you when you left? Because I'm wondering if you were there during the thick of it with. Because uh, I don't know how old you are, and I don't ever ask anyone. Um, but during the apartheid years. So, so I I grew up um, the last part of apartheid, and so for example, my dad used the arts and theater to to to. to you know, a form of soft power, which is you don't really understand the power of the arts and that kind of creativity unless you're living in an environment like that. So, for example, there was a guy by the name of Eugene Terreblanche, and he was head of a party called the AWB. Now, the AWB, if you go and look online, was one of the most pro-apartheid, pro breaking down black human rights, anyone that wasn't, you know, the stereotype of what they liked. And my dad had the wisdom to use the arts to c cultivate like someone like Eugene Terreblanche I'll have to translate for you because he said it to him in in English in Afrikaans but he said Jules yes the innerste juert van wat ek hou and basically in English it's like Jules you're the only Jew I actually like and my dad had the ability to go into like places where people like us you know like we're not allowed to go and he'd put on performances so he'd put on performances in prisons he'd put on performances in very 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 um non-acceptable places mm. to cultivate a conversation and so he was actively using the arts and everything that he'd built here in hollywood the like he couldn't have done what he did in south africa during apartheid like there were sanctions there were all these kinds of things where you couldn't get wigs you couldn't get like latex for you know like and all he was these a costumer correct? he was yeah. he was a chemist by training okay. and his obsession was the arts so he built the like the performance arts um you know like the state theater we call it there um and um center and um he put on 74 um, big like performances you know like for extended periods of time so there was operas ballets and I never understood the importance of what he was doing in a very quiet warm gentle friendly way he wasn't fighting apartheid the way many other people were fighting apartheid where you'd end up in jail instead he was using the arts to cultivate change and so for example our toilet at our shop where the pharmacy and the costume store was behind the shop in like the parking garage was our toilet and there was a sign and it said um like no no blacks allowed in this toilet and my dad used to take me we go we take the screw the screwdriver we go and unscrew it and we do this over and over and over again and my dad's thing was like anyone can use my toilet like who, who gets to do but he never ever said to me um we fight them this way it was just like unscrew it quietly and we just went about away and his his pharmacy he was like because he was a chemist by training and i know when i've spoken to americans it's amazing people are like how is that even possible so he had the training to create medicines and these like homeopathic treatments and so he became like this community pharmacist for all these people from all these walks of life they didn't have access to doctors or any type of medical treatment and so i learned from a young age the importance of someone like that and he never cared if he gave the medicine away for free he didn't care if the pharmacy didn't run at a profit he felt he had a, a, a need to provide to his community and i think the most important day of my life was when he died and i went to his funeral and i saw how many people showed up at that funeral and they were 
across like from the poorest of the poor all the way up the echelons to like ministers and that and it left a profound impact on my life because I had the ability to always look at my life and say well I'm going to die just like my dad died but I want to leave a legacy when the world is ultimately better for saving my life and so it was profoundly important that um, I honor I honor what he created in terms of he did create change and, and he was a force for good and I don't know, it's just a different model to what you see today. How old were you when he passed away? Nine years old, ten years old. Hi, Jules. <laughs> I'm sure he's incredibly proud of you. That 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 is a bravery, that sub subversive activism, that using, sort of right under their noses, you know, using that, uh, the way, um, like, Banksy. But I'm sure that he still had pushback. Did people ever attack? The weirdest part was like it's it, like ministers in that you know like powerful ministers were his friends like that's how I came you know came to feel very comfortable in Hollywood you know like with mm. stars and those things there were always stars at the shop because he was making people up the whole time and and I, I watched them come in and the the funny part was was that the greatest pushback didn't come from the outside world I think a lot of those ministers and powerful people they they liked him you know they liked him he had this just like this like charisma about him and like he just made people feel warm and I don't know people were very comfortable around him the biggest pushback came from his family I think that was the most interesting interesting thing was the idea that his family did not approve of the dream dream in him they they saw his capabilities in terms of the fact that he was um, the oldest child, he, you know, he studied to be a chemist, he did it in half the time, he spoke seven languages, you know, he was exceptional, and the idea that he could create all these things, like he had a book where he'd write, write up, your, your dad came from a science background, like, he, he had this big, big uh, book, and he'd write up formulae. Now, anyone with a science background understands, like, just sitting writing a formula is a very difficult thing to do, and we realized that after, you know, people would travel from around the world, because he made so many of these things that no one else was making, and I always used to say to him, can we please, like, because um, I was always an entrepreneur, like, can we productize this, and can I go out and sell it, and let's turn it into a big business, and he loved, like, I'd watch him climbing up this old step ladder at the back of the shop, I'd be standing at the bottom waiting for my dad to, like, fall down the step ladder and he'd be making these things and the joy of making something for someone that had traveled such a long way and being able to give them that thing he didn't care about the wealth that was created as much as the fact that he could help this person solve their problem and um, his family didn't approve of that the idea that two of his brothers took companies public um, both became very very wealthy it was that perception of if you have this knowledge if you have these skills this is what you are meant to do with your life and he had a different a completely different view of the world his view was like i create people come i connect we have an amazing time and they leave and i keep doing this and they are my community and i, I think now today we see a lot more of that like the way the world is evolving like we having this conversation tribes connecting but um his family was very, very disapproving. And I saw even in my upbringing, um, I've had these conversations like with my founders in that where you have to live your truth. You have to, even if your family, even if the people around you don't necessarily like what you're up to, you, you, you only live once, so you gotta live your truth. When you were at his funeral, I, I imagine, my father and I are exceptionally close. He's one of my best friends. 
and I he's at an age now where I think okay I, I need to start preparing and the love I have for him and the love he has for me it's it's mine it's his it's ours so when you are at this place you know this funeral and you're looking around at all these people that loved him differently than you loved each other but did that I know it made you feel like, oh wow, dad was this great guy, but how did you, I'm asking this for myself, I suppose, but how did you, how did you handle that? Such a massive figure in your life. And all these people can love him, but not like you love him. And that's yours. Did you feel any fisticuff about that? I don't know if that makes sense, that question. It makes complete sense. It took me a very long time to appreciate who my father was. And it within that, the idea that we had the kind of bond you're talking about with your dad. I think when he first died, one of my school teachers, she was very, very kind to me when he died. Um, you know, she'd come and she'd like sit at the house and that, and it was just, you know, Jewish mourning period and that, it was tough. And um, she said, you need a record all your conversations they used to have with you and you need to do it straight away before you you forget and I was a kid and I never understood what she was saying and I regretted it for the rest of my life because there's no you the time does pass and you don't remember a lot of it when it came to the people it was a weird feeling people coming years after he died, like literally yours, like to this day, the shop is still there. And it's a weird thing, you know, like it's a really weird thing that um, he died in 1994. Think about how long ago that was. People still come every single day, like, oh, Mr. Jules, the shop. And you know, like they generations that come and they had that experience of being in the shop with them. Um, you know, like grandparents were there or parents were there and he'd take them through the, his Hollywood journey. So, you know, he had all these photos with all these movie stars because he worked here, you know, he was trained under Max Factor here. So he literally got to work with the best of the best, like in the 1950s and that, and he got very friendly with some very, very powerful, interesting Hollywood celebrities and that. And he brought those memories back to South Africa where people who would never have been able to experience anything like that. Like, if you know where the shop is, it's like in the downtown business district. I'm talking like, uh, there's not much aspirational value where, where the shop ha was and is. And it gave light to people in a way that you can't possibly imagine. And it helped people, I think, go on journeys that they probably wouldn't have gone on any other way. And when you ask me about that, he taught me to be empathetic and he taught me to be selfless and I think I was happy to share that 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 memory of him. Mm -hmm. Like I think the hardest part was realizing that I didn't have a dad. Like that was a really, really difficult thing. My mom used to tell us like don't tell anyone your dad's dead. Like don't literally. So between the ages of ten and twenty one, I'd never acknowledged once that my dad was dead. Why was that? She had it in her head that if you told anyone your dad was dead, they'd feel sorry for you mm -hmm. and they treat you like a victim, especially if you were female. Um, so you had to be very, very strong. And you had to like, you know, like show this, this warrior-like strength. 
You had to, to wear a costume. There you go. To both for yourself <laughs> and the rest of the world. Yeah. And it was really strange. And I think there was a sense of loss that I felt that um, whenever like my husband, Darren, or anyone I'm close to, if they're very close to their parents, I'm always encouraging them to spend as much time as they possibly can with their parents. And if their parents, if like anything that's happening in your dad's life, whatever you are doing versus the time you can spend with your dad, prioritize that time with your dad. Whatever it is, always choose that relationship because that was the most important thing I took out of it. Once it's gone, it doesn't matter how much you try. That yeah. person's gone, they're gone. And I'm very proud of the fact that the people around me, the people who are closest to me, have said to me numerous times, like, my relationship with my parent, like, you changed my relationship with my parent. Like, mm. I'm so close to my parent now. And, like, so many people have said that to me. And they're like, it's only because of you. And I feel like that was a gift I could give the people around me. So the same goes for you. Like, I, I got you. to, I've been interviewing my parents. I love so, that. Um, and, uh, and that's been really wonderful because, and I, I think I said this a couple episodes back, that, um, you think you know your parents and you know them as parents and whatever that means to you but you don't know them as people necessarily and and their human struggles and their aspirations and who they were when they were little and what they thought and what they wanted and where they are now and what they regret for that matter i learned so much about them stories i had never heard uh it's it is truly an important thing to do interview your parents i'm saying <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I would love to listen to the interview because yeah, it great. sounds like you have a very, very special bond with your dad. I and do. it sounds like an extraordinary man. I do. I think we've spent many lifetimes together. It's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely He's beautiful. a good egg. <laughs> He's a good egg. I, you said in one of, again, I was reading several interviews. Obviously, I get genders mixed up, but that's okay. Uh, you had mentioned getting shot at. That's true. Um, no genders mixed up there. That was very accurate. Yeah. So when I was 15, um, that was the first. So we lived, we lived in what was a good area up until you know the problems which everyone's aware of in South Africa started in terms of like crime and those things. And so we stayed in that neighborhood. There were, we used to get robbed. Like it sounds really crazy, every single night. So it was kind of crazy that the I found... The house or the shop? The, what do you so, so the house, so let's start with the house. Okay. So um, the house was in Johannesburg, the shop was in Pretoria, and um, they'd like climb over the fence and they'd like come rob the cars. So you'd come in the morning and the cars were always broken into, or if you had um, laundry or anything, it was always stolen in the night. And they'd like, you'd watch them in your garden, like coming, like climbing over the fence, very, very six foot high fences. And you'd watch them like literally coming to it break in and you ended up with more and more security and then during the day we'd had 10 major robberies so we weren't there but like when they come in and they ransack your house like when you find mirrors and these kinds of things lying in your swimming pool and you're like oh they've robbed us again those are the big ones those are not the like little you know minor robberies where you come in the morning and the car is gone and that happened frequently but I remember just before that carjacking is what you call it here in the US happened I read an article in like my grandmother's cosmopolitan or something and they were talking about what happens if you're in a carjacking and they gave a list of notes and I was like well we have like this crappy car like no one's gonna steal this like car that barely goes I don't need to ever worry about this like they only steal fancy cars well I was mistaken 
So it was a Saturday night and my brother was coming back from synagogue. And it was really strange because the whole street, it was like 6.30 on a Saturday night. And we were driving up, the whole street smelled like acid. Like proper, proper, like the acrid smell of acid. And it was like a very strange thing. And before we knew it, we were being attacked. And my mother was like holding the steering wheel and she wouldn't get out. Like she was like, she just wouldn't get out the car. So in the process of this happening, there's a guy at the window and like he's attacking her. I get out, I jump out thinking I'm going to save her life. I've got to get to my next door neighbor's house. My brother is running behind me. You hear gunshots everywhere. Like there's literally gunshots just like flying. I don't realize one of the guys tried to shoot me dead. So in the process, my brother's behind me. I'm running as fast as I can to get to my neighbor's house. And he, like a bullet is coming for me. Like it sounds surreal. It sounds like we're in Hollywood, like a Hollywood movie. And this thing just like literally comes for me. And my brother literally, I'm running, he's running. And he, and he's much, much, much bigger than me. He's like over six foot tall. And he pushes me and this thing just like scrapes me and it comes like, it literally comes. And I think his attitude was like, whatever I do to you is better than what this is going to do to you. And I literally went all the way down the street and this thing just takes me. I don't even know what's happened. Like I get up, I'm like, I just keep on going. Like the adrenaline is just like, and I'm literally standing outside my neighbors. And my mother's still with this guy, guns are, bullets are flying. And I'm screaming my head off. The neighbors won't open their door because they don't have a clue what's going on. Eventually someone had the sense to, like someone climbed on their roof and someone had the sense to call the police. So now their neighbors watching this whole thing happen and they screaming and everyone's screaming. I don't know how my mother, they got the car. The guy, like, my, my mother's blind in one eye as a result of this. Like, he took the barrel of a gun and he, like, beat the crap out of her, like, over and over. She's lying on the street. And it was extraordinarily traumatizing. It was like, it was, it was like, like nothing I'd ever experienced before because every other, like, when they'd broken into the house and they, when they were bad, like, robberies, we were never home. But what ended up happening was I never, felt safe again mm -hmm. like the shop was broken into like there were lots and lots of incidents but that particular one like when I, I landed, eventually moved back to South Africa we had an attack Darren and I my husband where you know they put, put a gun to my head and it was bad but the idea that I was so young and so deeply affected by this terrible criminal experience it it, it left the mark on me like it really left the mark on me in terms of like this is real, like this is real. And it made me very, very, very driven to come to North America. Mm. Would you have had that same drive without that trauma? I think about that stuff a lot. And I think, you know, these horrible things that we experience and go through that shape us. It's unfortunate that we have to go through these things in order to put us on certain trajectories. And maybe we don't need them at all, but for some reason the universe conspires to think we do. Would you have made that leap without that trauma, do you think? I had a dream to come to the US my whole life. Mm. Like, so long as I can remember, it was like in my blood. You know, like it came from my dad and it was like, America's the greatest place on earth. Like you, it, literally that's how I was brought up to believe. And so I think I always wanted to come, um, but that really, like I remember that night and I was almost like, begging my mother I was like I really want to go to like my uncle my family was living in Canada and I was like I really like it was being contemplated very seriously contemplated about sending me to school in Canada 
and I was like I really want to go I really 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 want to go and I think part of the reason I was so driven to succeed in North America was the idea that I didn't want to go back to that like I still have a lot of family in South Africa and I do my best to support people in South Africa entrepreneurship artists all those kinds of things but the idea that as a woman that's a very big part of it like here being able to walk at night as a woman to and from my meditation class my yoga class that is a freedom i don't take for granted like i feel extremely privileged to be able to do that but you wouldn't be able to do that in south africa no way no way even now no way you, you can't do it like unless you're living like in a compound you know like there are one or two places where it's live work and play but like the freedom we have here as a woman it's like every day I, it's almost like I rub my eyes like I'm like I can't believe I have this kind of freedom which is why I like when people like here in the US are like oh we you know like they're not happy about certain things I'm like just be grateful okay <laughs> be excited be grateful yeah. because I've experienced something so so much worse yeah. that like anything here you can get through like yeah I still think that anywhere you are though you you still want to push for change and for making things better absolutely but yeah I get that wow it's very powerful how did you heal from that assuming you are in a better place with it all uh, tons of no, let me let me start with this. <laughs> it started with Tony Robbins. I'm uh, doing Tony Robbins in 2002 every single day with my bunny. Like, you know, like we were talking like about... Like listening to tapes, you so mean? I was listening to tapes okay. and I was like journaling every single day. Then when the bunny came, we would do it together. Um, the bunny meaning her, her rabbit. There you in go. In case there you're you wondering go. if that was a... <laughs> I don't know what you might thought that was. <laughs> um, and I did that for many years and then I found meditation and um, of course yoga in there, but the meditation where I learned to be my own healer mm -hmm. and I learned to sit with the pain and deal with it head on and breath work, qigong, you know, all ah, these types qigong. of, we should do qigong together. Qigong. I've uh, just started that practice. Let's go and do it on the beach. I do it I every morning it. on the beach, so oh. we should do it together. Okay, yeah. I love that you love qigong. I, I just, I mean, I've known about it forever, but I've just started that practice and it's great. Once you start, you can't stop. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> anyway. So that, that many years of commitment, I was very, very, very traumatized. And I think a trauma compounded because you, you start being fearful in a lot of areas mm -hmm. of your life that it doesn't serve you. So it, it was a lot of work, but it was worth it. Because again, like I think I am who I am today because of the trauma. And you got to Canada. I got to Canada. And you started teaching. Uh, so you had to, I guess. I, I, went as, I went in high school. Yeah. And so um, I, it was a weird random set of circumstances. I landed up going back to South Africa for a period because my family was there. And they had no math or, um, you know, like um, science teachers. It was crazy in South Africa. There's a shortage. And you coming from the father you come from, you know, the idea that um, something so important to a child's development, science, you know, all these things. Stem. That, there you go. Um, so I, I was doing my board exams at the time. I know it sounds so boring doing board exams, but I started giving out my resume at schools. So I was like, well, I, I'm studying for all these exams. I know I'm going back to Canada. I have these skills. I know there's this huge shortage of maths and science teachers maybe they want to locum like uh, like I don't I don't know if you call it locum here yeah, but it's like um, a stand-in teacher while their, their proper teacher uh, substitute there. substitute there yeah. you go you taught me a new word <laughs> thank you substitute. substitute teacher and it was weird because 
This one school, the head of the maths department had cancer and she was in very intensive treatment. And they phoned me and they said, can you start tomorrow? And you have to teach grade 11s and grade 12s math. And the grade 12s are writing their final exams, the most important exams of their school career in six weeks time. The average grade is 27%. And I was told, like, just all you have to do is show up. Like, literally, no one's expecting anything of them, just show up. And they're like, I come the next day, the principal's like, here's the maths book. Like, we're just paying you because legally, you know, you have to show up. Someone has to show up. I was like, okay, like, okay. Like, if somebody had taken that attitude with me, you know, growing up, that we don't really care about this kid as long as, you know, we do the bare minimum. There's a lot of that in America, too. Well, you educated me. So I get in this class, and everyone thinks I'm one of the teacher's kids because I'm like 18, 19 years old. And they eat the same age as me. Now, again, this comes back to your question about, about apartheid. So this school, once upon a time, was a very, very good boys' school, like one of the best boys' schools where a lot of the kids would land up on road scholarships and Fulbright scholarships here. And then as apartheid happened and all these, you know, um, weird random things happened, um, the school, like, it became a very, like, African school. So the boys that I, would teach, I was teaching were only Africans, like it was just all African boys. And so I walk into the class and they look at me and I'm small and tiny and they look at me and I look at them and they're just wild. They're like, this is the grade 12 class and they're screaming and they're wild and they're like, we're not going to listen to this person. And I was like, I got up on a chair, like this chair we're sitting on, and I'm like, shut up! <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm gonna, I love maths more than anything like in the world. I was very lucky, people loved maths and they taught it to me. And I'm not a teacher by training, but this is my passion. And I'm gonna share this passion with you and I hope that we can connect this way. We're here for a reason, we have a short time together and like let's make the most of it. And I think it was the first time in any of their lives anyone had shown them any care. Mm. And like they were really, really, really poor these kids, like really poor. And it was one of the most important times of my life. Like, it shaped me profoundly because at that time I had offers to go to like Goldman Sachs and you know, like really fancy firms. And I had no desire to, to be that person who went and did, you know, like the traditional thing versus the idea that, um, I suppose there's always the contrarian entrepreneur, you know, the idea that I could help mold these young people's lives when I knew what was an offer to them if somebody didn't step up. So one of the boys, for example, um, had an offer here from Florida for one of the top schools to play football here. And they, the school said, like he'd made it through everything, but if he didn't pass that final math exam, he wouldn't get the scholarship and it was non-negotiable. And there were like these small stories inside this group, which was like, there was a lot of hope if somebody actually helped. And so I, sat there i had no car or anything and it was a danger going back to dangerous neighborhood i grew up in so the school was probably 15 blocks away but it was dangerous and so i'd teach these boys until like 10 o'clock 11 o'clock in the night and they took to me and i took to them and then they'd walk me home at night and wow. we did this over this period yeah i did it over the weekends they I, protected you they protected me and in the process it was not difficult. The maths part was the easy part to teach them. It was 
they came through you know like they came through he got his scholarship we stayed in contact to this day when i'm in south africa a boy will run up to me and you know like i'm in the mall or something but like, alicia alicia how are you how are you they'll give me a big hug and they'll give me the speech i'm like let me just think about okay yes i taught you and there were it was a very 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 important time in my life because again i chose my own path um a lot of what i do today in terms of empowering entrepreneurs educating entrepreneurs it all came from that foundation can i take something which is theoretically complex and make it something very simple that anyone can understand it where the person feels a sense of like ownership of the knowledge that you've given them that they can go and apply it in their own lives this is why i think we need all the education in prison there you go there you go educate people give them something to feel good about give them hope give them a sense of pride and believing in themselves something that uh, many people across the board across the world don't have it's incredibly powerful i agree yeah I, what happened to some of these people when they graduated and then they get stuck in crappy jobs that must have been very frustrating very so that was another time where i'm a contrarian just in case you didn't know <laughs> so um I was lecturing math, so I was building companies, so this was at a point where I was building, and um, they asked me to lecture, so I was teaching at the um, Institute for Banking and uh, Finance, so it was like a feeder for the insurance and banks, mm -hmm. and South Africa is pretty ahead when it comes to banking and these kinds of things, probably because there's so much fraud and they test a lot of the technology <laughs> in South Africa, it's very, very ahead of its time. but. I was teaching the first year statistics, second year financial math, third year finance, and my students would like the students would graduate, and then you'd be again talking about a mall. You'd be in the mall or something, and one of your students would greet you, and they'd be like working, you know, in a very menial job, if that. Hi, Lisa, how are you doing? They'd say, and I'd be looking, and I'd be like, Why is my student with a degree in maths and finance or, or finance? Why are they sitting behind the shop? At like this counter at like the stationery store like something's wrong here so I went back to like the chancellors of the universities and I was teaching at multiple universities at the same time I was very entrepreneurial and I was building businesses very entrepreneurial and I was like I'm not teaching the stuff anymore like I have better ways of using my skills unless I can teach these young people entrepreneurship this is ridiculous the system has failed them it's like dismal like their families are taking out loans to help them get a university education. Many of these people are first generation university graduates. Their parents will be in debt for the rest of their lives because often like, like it just doesn't make any sense financially like what they're earning versus what this education costs. And the best we can do for them is that or nothing. So I was like, either we teach entrepreneurship or I'm out, I'm going to board companies now, but this is just like, it's gut-wrenching to watch. It's like give so, a man a fish versus teach exactly. a man a fish. So I was like, I'm building companies. I want to teach them how to build companies. And I started like teaching them entrepreneurship. And I started teaching them like the practical aspects of building companies using their training. Like they're learning financial services. They're learning banking. They're learning accounting. Instead of like learning it with the idea that the only option is to get a job from someone versus building for yourself. Mm. And it it was really the beginning of everything for me because the idea that I could use my skills and they could 
bold using their skills mm -hmm. was like that transfer from generation to generation it was extremely inspiring like to this day some of the stuff that happened I'm extraordinarily grateful for because it gave me the confidence and conviction to keep like pushing this forward the idea that the only option available to you is not a job like you can build anything you want like literally you can productize and scale yourself and literally be like you anything you want to be in this world it comes down to your self-belief and you know like just product pro productizing it in a way that someone will pay for it and you can keep going versus this constant asking permission like please will you employ me it's it's so sad that's to watch. why i put on my own art shows over going to waiting I'm for so proud of you. that's why I, when i started painting i it's what i did because uh, i i showed my work to, to a big gallery in nashville and the curator said oh these are great where did you get your mfa and i said oh i'm self-taught and i don't have an mfa and she said oh we only show work with people that have mfas and i thought wow that's crazy because there's a lot of really fantastic outsider art that those people don't have you know but regardless i went okay i guess i'm putting on my own shows now you know and that's the thing, you know, you ha I agree with you 100%. If somebody, there's always going to be the people telling you no. You need the people inside your brain to go, well, let's just do this. Fuck it. Beautifully said. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Like, I think I'm like the queen of unemployable. Like, everyone associates me with the concept of, like, unemployable. Like, like my tribe is like, just like what you just you are the perfect tribe member like you are like <laughs> i'm world class and i'm doing this for myself and i ain't asking for permission yeah. so stop asking for permission i agree with that absolutely i want to meet your parents because they've done a spectacular <laughs> job oh uh, they're interesting we'll talk about that later they're interesting <laughs> characters they are characters for sure was when you when you got your way <laughs> which i love and they agreed to let you teach entrepreneurship and teach people a lifetime of fishing now do you turn the your your sights on the world is that in the moment where you thought okay i've done it here on this little scale now i'm gonna i'm gonna hit the world i think so like it was fun mm -hmm. i think the best things i've ever done i think just made sense mm -hmm. and so absolutely and um i had like i wanted to do more and i think that was like always like these little seeds that i was planting and um the idea that I could build for myself and help fund other, that, like, there in that situation, I was equipping them to build their own businesses, but I knew where the issue lay. Like, I'd been an entrepreneur long enough to know the issue of capital. Like, if founders don't have access to capital, they can only build so far. Like, I, yeah. I bootstrapped a ton of companies, and I, it's a very good thing to do, but at the same time, there's power in being, being able to raise capital. Like, for example, you can raise in the US. And so the idea that I could create enough leverage for myself that I could help other founders build. Like for example, all the art you see here, that was a platform we funded ourselves. And it was a very important platform in terms of, I'm happy to tell you more about it because you, you, you're in art. So I was doing the uh, teaching and the entrepreneurship thing. And then we owned one of the top agencies in South Africa um, using data for social media, for any type of marketing before anybody was using data. Again, love of maths and data. and. Um, it was fascinating because we these interesting projects would come our way. So one of the projects that came our way was the South African government decided that they wanted to build a platform, Etsy before Etsy. Um, so where um, 
artistic creative people could have their own shops on this platform and they could exhibit for, to international audience and they could sell their products and, and the art whatever whatever kind of art it was and um, it, the site that was built cost us as the people developing it on behalf of the government a substantial amount of money to build and it was exquisite it was as I say it was Etsy before anyone even knew what Etsy was it was very ahead of the times and it was exquisite you being an artist it was really really beautiful like it had that like African feel to it but it had that modern edginess to it and the government decided they're not they're not doing off the months love put into this thing they're not doing anything about it they wanted to dump it so Darren comes back from the meeting and they're like no it's a waste of time we can't be bothered there's no reason to do this and I was like this is you can't throw this away like this is too important to throw away like we need to take responsibility we funded this they're not paying us for it I, I'm taking ownership of this thing like we're gonna turn it into something like it's too special like there's humans who want to sell to an international audience who will want what they're creating so I'm thinking to myself okay now how do we go about this okay we have a platform it's beautiful um, now what so I put up all these adverts all over the place calling I remember the adverts you've got to see the adverts like I have to find one of these adverts you'll laugh your head off I was so naive but it was so cute like I'm so proud and I put up all these adverts like saying to these artists in there compare it to your experience with that gallery like calling all artists and creatives like come and meet with me yeah. we're, we're launching this platform we're going to take you to an international audience we anyhow we did it and these artists started flocking in all that creative designers and sculptors and it took me so we had the business by day and this was like my side hustle and i fell in love with the whole thing and every monday all the like, artists would come they bring their works and more and more and more artists started arriving and it started evolving this whole thing started evolving and my hero one of my heroes my whole life has been lorenzo medici because you know like he was so like he was right like I have a 250 year old book there of lorenzo medici's life he was so many things like you described yourself he wasn't just this banker a hyphenate there you go yeah. and i was like I want to do this I want to help all these artists and we started accumulating more and more art and I used to like help all and one by one they'd be like Alicia I've got no money Alicia I've got no money you have to help me out I'm like okay so we have Christmas presents for all our corporate clients uh -huh. every client will get every person who works with us will get an artwork and so they would like do lithographs and that and we I'll show you pictures to this day and there'd be a message on the back from the artist and these were like corporate clients like Roche pharmaceuticals and and the clients would go like wild for these artworks and we were building this like whole little following around us and these people wanting to stake these artists in their businesses and it was incredibly inspiring and for me the idea that I could build for myself and at the same time financially capitalize other people's businesses and not not just one kind of business but I already saw back then that was a very long time ago before NFTs and all these things became cool the power of creative people to build these tribes around themselves to build brands to build very very sustainable businesses um, it was like huge and it, it inspired me that I was like so long as I'm building my stuff I can build their, help them build their stuff too and a rising tide lifts all ships so absolutely to answer your question absolutely it was just like it just compounded and compounded and compounded and you can see a lot of these artworks yeah your art's beautiful these are a lot of African artists like I'll take you through it it was all because of that had I not had that experience like we have a container full of 
of art in South Africa that I keep wanting to bring to the US. And then one of the art hubs in South Africa was like, again, going back to apartheid, um, it was a big anti-apartheid um, hub where uh, American artists, European artists would come and stay there. And they were like, well, can we have the platform? We want to build it out. And, and I was like, you know what, you guys, you deserve this. Like you can build it out. I think they bit off more than they could chew in mm. the sense that I think it was a difficult business in the sense that the internet was moving in that so fast and I needed a lot more capital than they than they had available. But I'm still glad that when they asked me to give it to them, I gave it to them. I gave them to them as a gift and I'm very, very, very proud of of what came out of it. Very Sounds like somebody needs to build a permanent museum slash that's one of my dreams here in LA. That's one of my dreams. Yeah. Like it's one of my dreams. You can bring all that art and have it's one of my dreams. It's yeah. very, very, very important. And I think LA is the perfect place to do it. Like, literally, you say that. Like, we speak about it a lot. Yeah. I think, absolutely. I'll, I'll go to the reception. I'm <laughs> I'll need your help. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm pulling you into it. Oh, so. great. What's the difference uh, between an angel investor and a regular investor? So, if there is a difference. So, regular investor, how would you define a regular investor? I am not sure, to be honest. Okay. Uh, I guess somebody goes to someone and says I have this idea look at my PowerPoint <laughs> and then give me money and you will get a part of this idea and it will grow and everybody will be happy and then an angel investor to me is somebody that is like this may not work but maybe it will <laughs> but I'm gonna give you money anyway <laughs> I think they're both angel investor I think yeah like I think friends and family could be defined as like angel investors but then I suppose you can go into the minutiae of like accredited investors in there, which I know there's a lot of a lot of talk about the unfairness that, you know, only certain people get to sure. invest in like hedge funds and those things where like the biggest returns are on there. But keeping it simple, I believe you understand very well okay. what the concept of angel investor is. Yeah. With everything happening right now globally with economics and the massive separation between rich and poor that's the divide is getting bigger all the time where do you see that heading do you think there'll be a collapse do you think that we'll figure out how to bring back the middle is there a middle anymore i think i'm an optimist i, w I wouldn't be sitting here if i wasn't because the odds weren't in my favor mm. i often say to people african-born female like single parents like survived by the you know like by the just like pure survival so I think I'm living proof that things do ultimately work out for the better. <laughs> but um, I believe, keeping it simple, going back to what we were saying, if each individual was like you, where they like took their lives into their own hands, and they're like, I actually have these skills and I'm gonna build for myself, because if my goal is to be wealthy, um, it's about owning equity, and you can own equity in your own business, which no one, as you said, you, can't, you don't have to ask anyone for permission when it comes to owning your own business. And I've always said, Amer taking America, America's greatest export to the world. I know this, I was a, I was a product of this, like, is entrepreneurship. And the knowledge that so many of us have gained as a result of um, Americans' generosity and being willing to share it, the world would be a very, very different place if that wasn't open to all of us. And. Uh, for me, that I fundamentally believe, you can be negative, like we can talk about the economics, we can talk about the problems, we can talk, I know I always get into trouble because um, I was doing a ton of public speaking and I'd be asked to speak in these very high profile um, 
panels, you know, like with ministers from, you know, the British government and prime ministers from all these emerging markets countries. And I'd always get shouted at because they were like, but you're not talking about the problems. You're not talking about the problems. Like, you're not talking about all these huge things we have wrong in Africa. And I'm like, but if you've been in Africa, you know what the problems are, okay? I'm not going to add any value here by sitting talking about the problems. I'm trying to come up with solutions that we all know are very feasible mm -hmm. and we're very entrepreneurial and we're willing to learn. So why don't we work from that base? And I fundamentally believe that if each person was brave enough, because I think it comes down to bravery and letting go of fear, and people were like, I'm not going to wait for somebody to help me. I'm not going to wait for somebody to give me an opportunity. We both women, we know that you have to take your life into your own hands. I'm just going to go and do it for myself and it's going to be a struggle. But at the same time, I fundamentally believe in what I'm doing because each of us has something unique to give to the world. Um, I can earn a living from it and I'm an owner of this thing and it can become as big as I choose for it to become. And I think if every person in the world built a business for themselves, it's not a bad way for the world to look. Ultimately, we all have some element of freedom in there that we get to make our own choices. I think about you, though, stepping into that classroom full of faces that think, who's this, you know, little tiny person <laughs> standing on a desk. But in, in because you whispered in their ear, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who you are, that em emboldened them and enabled them. And I think there are many people who never hear that voice. They've forgotten it for themselves. They don't have a parent saying it. They don't have teachers saying it. Their friends aren't saying it. And it's easy to forget. It's a tricky planet, you know. Um, when I look at the issues around the world, I think, oh, we've forgotten how much we need each other. There's a symbiotic necessity to humanity and I wonder how long they'll keep forgetting before the, the, <laughs> the coins will be lifted off their eyes, I guess. The dollar signs will be lifted off their eyes. I think about this stuff a lot, obviously, because I talk to people from all walks of life and backgrounds and birthrights, quote unquote. Um, yeah, it's heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Remember who you are. And it's so simple. Like, it's such a simple thing. Like just paying attention like what you're doing with these interviews and just taking the time to actually listen to someone standing in front of you taking the time to actually just understand their story like I think that's the best part about my life is that I just get to do that all the time and I just like love asking people about their lives because it's they humans are so fascinating fascinating endlessly and you learn so much just like from Often I'll come home and Darren will be like, but how did you find that out about that person? And how did you find that out about that person? And they t everyone tells you everything. And I'm like, not really. Like, I just like to listen and I like to ask a lot of questions. And if you give people a room, it's amazing what they'll share and how connected you can feel and how good you can feel leaving that interaction. And it's like that, you know, like that pay it forward approach. Like you take what you've learned and you I'm sharing it with you I'm sharing it with you I'm sharing it with you I'm sharing it. and it, it, it does have that ripple effect and I, I feel like LA is very special that way like it's got this incredible energy and it, 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 it's got this optimism that at a time like we've been living through is so inspiring like people creating the, the sheer creativity and 
doing it just for the right reasons, purely just because people believe in what they're doing, that's super inspiring. There's no better way to build something than truly being committed to what you're doing because you're in flow. I agree with that 100%. When I, uh, when I was in Nashville and, you know, I'm a songwriter, I lived there for 13 years and some new artists or new writers would come in to write with me and, you know, I would say, well, what is, what's your goal here? What are you looking to do? What, how, what is your voice? And a lot of times they'd be like, I just want to be rich and famous. And I'm like, well, you're going to, you're going to find that that is not the best maybe beacon to follow. Like if you're doing this because you can't not do it, if you have something to say, you want to, you know, share, it's a, it's a communion. For me, at least, music is a communion. And I don't begrudge people for wanting to be rich and famous. I think that's something a young artist goes through. Then they get to the other side and they're like, oh, well, maybe I'm doing this, this art for art's sake, you know. Uh, I imagine that's true for a lot of business too. I, I, I always say, oh, I have a creative mind, not a business mind. I'm like, well, wait, no, that's not, that's selling myself short. I have a business mind too, else I wouldn't have done the things I've done. It's very confusing. You have a business mind and a creative mind. I'm saying that with my investor hat on. <laughs> like, like, it's as clear as day, you are very smart. Like, just the, like, the way you described, like the way you went about selling your art in there, mm. you are very, very aware of what needs to be done for you to succeed in building your venture. And you were making me laugh when you were talking about these young artists wanting to be rich and famous, because it's the same like when it comes to founders. It's it, so many of them, and you can spot them, you know, like they have this idea that it's like about the fame and fortune of, I'm gonna drive a Lamborghini or these, you know, random goals. And the ones that truly succeed, like I have founders where they've been doing something, one of them's been doing what he does since he was 10 years old like he's in the biotech space and he's been driven to do this for like 25 years like he will like his company is worth a substantial amount of money but it's his life's work it's he's you know like he lost a family member to cancer and you know like he was profoundly affected by it and so all the love and all of that went in to this and this is his commitment to himself to to this family member and so the wealth is almost like a side product of the journey like it was really weird you know i was sharing chapter one in my book like it's been a labor of love and i was sharing it with people close to me and um it's a, about me building my first venture when i was five years old and this pair of pink roller skates that i wanted and it was the truth a five-year-old wanting to pursue the entrepreneurial dream. I wanted to figure out the most entrepreneurial way of getting these pink roller skates as quickly as possible. And so I went and raided my dad's Hollywood wardrobe and you know, all these, got all these cool clothes and I put a sign outside our shop and, and basically rang a bell and put in every element of charisma I had inside of myself and I sold everything very quickly and I got the money and I went and bought the pink roller skates and it's in the, in the book. And I sent it to like tribe members and the effect of the pink roller skates and me not wearing the pink roller skates because I, the journey to me was more important than the destination. It's Ithaca. And there you go. And people were like, but you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. <laughs> and it was really fascinating to see how different people viewed these pink roller skates. And to me, it was there's a lot of symbolism in it because you were talking about the journey versus um, the, the wealth that comes as a result. And if I'm sure of one thing, like, for me, wealth is that I can invest in projects that are very, very important to me, like museums, and we were talking about support animals and funding research to extend 
animals lives which is so important and people don't focus enough on it the idea that you've created wealth where you can write that check and you can be like these things are important and nobody else is going to show up to do them therefore i want to be the person that shows up to do these things because society is fundamentally better for these kinds of things um that's the role i want to play but mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just I think we all mature. We all find our way. Oh, for sure. And and again, it's about re reminding people that they have power. It's that thing like if I am a painter and I can't afford to go buy expensive acrylics, well, what else do I have? Well, I could go get palettes that are just thrown on the street. So there's my canvas, and then I could, you know, there's the that one artist in prison that he he didn't have paints obviously because he's in prison, but he had M and M's in the commissary, so he bought M and M's and he melted them down and he painted with the candy color from the M&M's and I thought well that's genius it's everywhere art is everywhere science is everywhere math is every it's it's everywhere it's about your perspective of of how you see the world and as much as I love my smartphone and I say this a lot on this show too I'm trying to more and more as I get older you know I try not to look at that I feel bad for people when they're walking around staring at their phones because they're missing the entirety of the universe. It could be in a tiny bug that goes by their head or like a flower that you pass by. What if that flower inspires you because of the color and then you go home and you paint some masterful painting based on that color you saw or maybe it's the spiral in the pineapple you ate. But if you're on the phone, you're thinking about the phone, you're not thinking about the spiral in the pi pineapple that then inspires some mathematical equation that's been driving you insane. But you haven't given your brain any time to absorb like God, you know? You are extraordinary. <laughs> like the way you just said that, I was loving every minute of it because earlier you were talking about like, you know how we separate art and science and all these things, yeah. but it's all one and the same. It's all the same. And you just did such a magnificent <laughs> job bringing it all together. Like that was beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's, it, my life's work, I feel, is, is trying to remind people that they are God, whatever that means. I don't know what it means. I won't know until I, again, shuffle off to Buffalo, but but I do believe whatever we are, we are infinite in that thing. I believe in a higher being of stuff. To me, it's, a, it's like an energetic all that is capable of all, that feels and knows and thinks all, and including the, the negative and the positive, the shadow and the light. It's all there. People that you know we learn as much from our shadow as from our light I talk about that all the time do you believe in a higher power are you I, it's very strange us talking because like it's talking about higher powers the way brad connected us mm -hmm. and he's like you like you're on the same wavelength like you will get each other and it's like we've been going to classes together it's like we've been reading books together it's like weird we've just met yet i see things exactly the same way yeah. as you like how you, you you were talking about the shadow self and i think a lot about that in terms of how so many people run from the shadow self versus embracing it and how we are all these infinite things and absolutely like absolutely like i, I grew up jewish yeah. but i've never only been you also like i've never only been jewish as much as i've been like the way you describe it like I, i'm a being and i interact with beings in all shapes or sure. forms and there's something much more powerful at work as far as all of us together here and um that's why i grew up some of my best friends were muslim kids mm -hmm. and i learned to appreciate it like 
I watched, it was this very, I was on the scholarship at this very fancy school that I couldn't have afforded to go to any other way. And um, I watched how the other kids ostracized people that were different and that was their upbringings. And it was like, you are not the same as me. And it was at a time where there was a lot of like negativity around different people in different walks of life. And I was like, they seem like nice people. Maybe I should just like give them a chance. And again, it was a lesson as I went on this journey of my own life that I, I don't get to like define people in these categories. I don't see people's colors. I don't see anything. I just see a human and a soul in front of me. And I think it's a weird thing. It's been a gift because as a result, I've made very, very good investments as far as being an investor where other people have not seen the person sitting in front of them and they've written off that person. And then they'll be like, wow, how did you see that? And you like want to laugh to yourself. I'm like, the person was sitting right in front of you, like literally in front of you. And it's just been a really interesting lesson in terms of just being open. Like, you know, everyone talks about love, but literally it's like being a loving, kind, open person <laughs> can kind of be like a superpower. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And also, I think these days, the most challenging thing perhaps in that is... Um, to see the people that you look at and think, I would never think that, I would never feel that, I would never say that. That person is so far removed, they, they seem soulless, they seem angry, they seem hateful. You know the kind of people I'm talking about. And to see yourself in them. Because until we can do that, we will never get to the other side, you know? We'll never get there. You have to acknowledge that, that self in you. And as nice as we may be, or kind, or loving, or whatever, you know, the, the the monster lives in everyone. But that's your power. Like, you can see you've traveled the journey. Like, and you know who you are inside. That beautiful art, your music in there. That, that Like, the fact that you can say that with complete, like, peace. That's, that's massive. Because um, I had to travel the journey myself to be able to say exactly what you're saying. Where you're like, wow. Like, I have had to call myself out where I'm like oh I'm actually judgmental I never realized it and then the moment you're like actually I need to I need to actually work on that like I'm actually more judgmental than I'd like to give myself you know yeah, incredible. Course, sure. and, and, and like I feel like that's that turning point when you realize as you say you're looking at these things and other people you're like I don't like it when actual fact hey I don't like it because it's, it's so weird. hard in me yeah. <laughs> the, mirror, the mirror is brutal Meditation's good for that. Like meditation's yeah. really good for being able to step away and be like, wow, like I have work to do. Well, and getting to a place where you can see you're the little girl running away from the bullet and you're also the, the man firing the gun. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, it's not even duality, it's not binary. It's it's so gray and, and mosaic, yeah. You have a powerful voice, you have a powerful journey. The fact that you can, like, what you just said in terms of being those two people. Yeah. Most people are frightened yeah. to have that conversation, to actually say like, I am both those people at the same time and I'm at peace with it. And now how I live my life is, how do I choose? Do I choose to be this one? Do I choose to be this one? Yeah. And the whole time navigating that way, leaning into the one where you're like, okay, I'm a strong, good, caring, loving person who can do good in the world, be a force for good. Like that's the one you choose. but. It's an act of choice. Yeah, I think about uh, ancestral pain and, and the, you know, our fathers and our mothers and our fathers, fathers and mothers and the things that they have gone through and wherever they were in their journeys and uh, 
in some cases, giant traumas heaped upon them, and how that stuff filters down through the DNA. And I think, okay, if I can heal this in me right now, I believe that it, it ripples back through time or forward because time doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but I do believe that. So if I'm healing this one part of myself, it gets me a bit emotional, that, um, that it somehow, my great-great-grandmother who had a trauma that is akin to it, doesn't have to be the same, but just akin, adjacent, that it heals her and then it somehow ripples back to me again. I don't know, it's the quantum physics type of stuff. I've done a lot of personal work when it comes to that, like with the breath work and that. I'm sure you'd agree it's very powerful in terms of that kind of healing process. Like yesterday I was doing a breath work session and my breath work teacher who does a lot of Reiki and she was like, she was like, she could feel like that kind of trauma in my body. And she was like, you need to let it go. And it was like manifesting, you know, like in my shoulder, in my neck. And I was always convinced that it was trauma from like car accidents and all those things. She's like, no, this is stuff that's far deeper. And it's on an emotional level. You gotta, you gotta do the work. Go to the shadows, as you were saying. Like yeah. breathe into it and release that trauma because often it's been passed down. And it's powerful, but it it's is. painful. Like when you said you were, you were getting emotional. I know, I know. <laughs> it's it's tough work. It's hard. It's, it's hard to touch the pain, boy, hottie. It really is. It's like, yeah, I've got this this wound. It's ancestral wound. I'm just gonna jab my fingers in there and rub it around a little bit, and, and I'm gonna scream out. But then, then I'm gonna pull my fingers out, and I'm gonna put some salve on there, and it's eventually gonna heal. Yeah. And I'll have a scar, and it's gonna be an honor to and have a, a scar. scar. Yeah, yeah. Poof. Okay, so we moved inside because it was getting very loud out there. So that is why the sound changed. It's the same day. <laughs> uh, what is the name of your book? We're still working on it. Under Wraps. Oh, okay. I thought so because when I read that you had a book, I thought, oh, and I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. So I'm glad to know that that wasn't just me. So a book is a labor of love <laughs> and the perfect title <laughs> it's a labor of love too. So the book is written and ready. I want you to read it and give yeah. you the feedback. But it's actually really hard getting getting the perfect title. I don't know if it's difficult titling your artworks, but titling a book is like I had it and then it didn't I didn't feel that sense of connection to the title. Yeah. And I'm so obsessed with reading. I don't know if it's the same for you that I've Books have been my teachers for so long that the idea that I create something that is around for a very long time, like those are the Harvard classics, and they're really interesting because they were written in, like that collection was put together like in like the 1930s by um, like the Dean of Harvard. It's a very interesting story. He wanted any person to be able to get a Harvard education without paying for a Harvard education. And so for 15 minutes a day, you couldn't read, and it takes you on a, a reading program. I should show cool. you the reading program. So every day, the intensity of your reading increases, and you go literature, science, art, history, and every day it gets more difficult. And I thought, by the time I took this as a challenge last year of reading all these books, I thought I was a really good reader. Like, you know, like I thought I had mastery over reading, because in the last five years, I read 5,000 books. So I was like, oh, I'm a good reader. I know a thing or two about reading. And then I undertook this little Harvard challenge. And I was like, 
oh wow, this is different to what I imagined. Like poetry is actually extremely hard. And like to truly understand what is written here by some of the greatest poets of all time. And so I think as far as the title of the book goes, the reason I'm trying to get this, this magnificence in the title, for lack of a better term, is I want it to be a contribution to, to something much greater than me. And I don't want to just put it out there and then it doesn't truly convey the spirit of what I'm trying to share, which is equipping people like me who need the knowledge and information that I've suffered in acquiring. I believe there's a lot of suffering in acquiring this information. And I believe there's a lot of timeless information in there, but my aim is to equip them with the tools to empower themselves, to build um, their own businesses, their own dreams in a way that the probability of success is more in their favor than they're not because um, everything inside there is built through tools and systems. And um, that's why like, the, the title to me is so important. It's like the, the, the finishing touch to yeah, the I get yet, it. Yet. Yeah, but you also have to get out of your own way. Your bird, Banksy, is, I think, wanting to also put it in. <laughs> it's going to get more interesting. He wants to put it in his two cents. I, I can, it's funny because as you were talking, he, it was as if he was talking with you at the same time. I think I yes, he wants. Yeah. Like he's gonna come and sit on your laptop. He he loves crypto. He's obsessed with crypto. Like so talking about it, like everything, everything about he. he I don't know if it's my voice. When I don't you know talk about it, maybe when yeah. I'm interacting with. I don't know if people in crypto are very excitable about what they're up to. I think to. they're very excited this about is, it. This is yeah. when I talk about crypto. Yeah, and NFTs. How's it feel about NFTs? <laughs> I want to do a line of NFTs. I want to figure out how to sell $3 million worth of my art I love in it. 10 minutes. I love it. I don't know anything about the world. I, was, I had a guest on, uh, Torhan Kalik, and he talked about NFT a little bit. Um, but it's, I just like, who wants me to pay for them? I will do it. Let's do it. I'll help you anytime. Like, I find it so fascinating, and it's so, for women, it's very, very empowering. Yeah. Like, the idea that you can build something so valuable and the people who are buying it, the people who are supporting you, who are you, you interacting with, these are people who are fundamentally on your side and sure. wanting to see you succeed. And I think that's, it's a lifetime relationship with your community and it's like this relationship of equality between you and them where they don't want to just like speculate on your art because they want to, like the art is self-funded, like you, you, in it with the artist yeah. and you like this art piece behind you it's a really interesting art piece mm. so um there are a couple he works at google by day and they married and they paint artworks together at, and at night and okay. over the weekends and so this is about financial freedom and he grew up in india and his parents used to take him to orphanages and they used to show him like how lucky he was in comparison to what, what you know another life alternative that he could have landed up with and so they grew up with the sense of responsibility so their goal is to sell a million dollars worth of artworks every single year and donate it to things like Kiva and like really important like uh, programs that financial freedom can be created through and so he literally comes home and after day at Google like they're waiting to unveil a piece of theirs at Google um, they paint together and like they show the struggle here in this particular artwork and the pain and the struggle and that and then the breakthrough and how many people you as an artist can appreciate the struggle of you know like breaking through and you know like the world 
being in flow with you and your art and I found it was a very important piece and like I just I had to have this piece and when you talk about your NFTs I'm on their side I talk to these founders the whole time like yeah. I'm constantly like what's happening how's it going they're in the book and it's like the idea that art and creativity should be well funded huh. and it's an Amen. equal in, it's a business like any other business and the idea that you as an artist don't have to struggle like what the hell like why do artists have to suffer so much where did society come up with this thing that a great creative people must be poor like what the hell and then when you have an artist like we have a Jeff Koons there oh. and it's like the idea that Jeff Koons is allowed to, to be rich but no I love Jeff Koons but like the rest of the artists are suffering there like that's the best part about the NFTs well it's important also we talked about relationship earlier and to remember as a consumer of beauty that it has value that there is somebody on the other side of that paintbrush or that uh, computer program or whatever it is that's, or that clay or whatever you buy that, or music that you think is beautiful like, buy it don't just take it off the internet don't just if you if you discover something I think that the Grateful Dead understood this model that you know people would share tapes of the Grateful Dead for free in the parking lots of their concerts and stuff and massively trade and share and uh, without commerce but because of that they they learned that oh I love this thing now I'm going to go and support the art I think it's okay to discover something but then put your money where your mouth is I speak that as an artist it would be lovely if people did that you know you have a radio show let's talk about it <laughs> so <laughs> Like all entrepreneurs, I built something that was so big I could almost not sustain it. I learned a lot from it. Like it became like this global radio show and it got a lot of support from the US government, the British government. And it was like, like I'd have like 10 machines. This was before anyone had podcasts and founders would be like pounding me with questions and I'd have like AI as a topic and I'd have like five to eight experts on AI. Cool. Founders from around the world, startups, students, high school students, you name it. And they were just like desperate to learn. And I knew I'd done something special when we had a show on robotics and a Kenyan messaged me to say, like, look, I built a helicopter. And I'm like, what the hell? And I was like showing it to the community. I'm like, he built a helicopter out of scraps. From in the Kenya. Middle, from just, Kenya. Just, yeah. And he used the knowledge we were sharing and like a radio-free entrepreneurship. And he learned using YouTube videos and how to build a helicopter from scratch. And people thought it was not possible. People thought you had to have um, a world-class education to become world-class at AR, robotics, coding, you name it, building a company. And as a result of the, the show, that I went on this journey, I needed to become a venture capitalist that I could um, creative capital in a new way, where it was like I could fund things that were important to me and I could also have real conversations and founders could feel a sense of trust and we could, like we were having the conversation outside, funding bleeding edge science that a lot of people would write off and say, no, that doesn't, that's not real, you, you can't, like, that's not possible versus I want to fund this because this is important and in 10 or 20 years time you'll understand it. And so now the show is coming back and it's like what you're saying here, like on your podcast where it's like real real human conversations around building very important stuff where I am working with 
very interesting people. Like for example, two days ago, I was interacting with them. Um, she's an ag tech investor and she's a career VC. She had tenure at a top university and she was an immigrant woman. She's like us. And she walked away from tenure and she was like, I'm a contrarian. And she was studying ag tech long before it was cool to study ag tech. I'm going to go and do this VC thing. And she worked her way through it. She's become very successful. Really, really, we landed up investing in a lot of the same ag tech companies. Is that agriculture technology? Yes, agriculture okay, technology. I was guessing. Okay. And we were having this fabulous <laughs> conversation about like mental models and like, you know, like, like managing risk in these things. And it was you're expecting that conversation to happen between two guys. You're not expecting it to happen between two women, like you and me having this conversation. And I was like, there's an intergenerational knowledge transfer like you and your dad. Your dad has taught you things that if you never took the time and trouble to actually learn about those things and ask your dad, that incredible knowledge that your dad had, um, that knowledge like with Richard Feynman, that it would be gone. And the idea that I have the ability to ask the most extraordinary people in the world the dumb questions, because I know I'm not the smartest person in the room and I'm very comfortable not being the smartest person in the room, um, that excites me beyond measure because it means that there are people right around the world that want those answers, but they're too afraid to ask. I'm the person that they can ask and be like, Alicia, ask this person this question. And Alicia will be like, I don't care how dumb this question is. I'm going to ask it and I'm going to enjoy it because that person has that knowledge and I want to be that person who transfers it down to the next, the next, the next generation. So you have to join the new, the radio show. It's coming back with a vengeance and I want you on it. I would freaking love to be on it. And what are you titling? Is it still fireside? It's still fireside chat because um, that's just like, like, you know, the history of the fireside chats yeah, yeah. with your president. Sure. And, and yes, yes, yes. And it was so inspiring how he'd sit there. Yeah. And like, as this little immigrant, you know, from Africa, the idea that like, I'm part of American history and I'm continuing it. this legacy. And it was such an important time in American history. I feel like I honor this journey and I honor the privilege of being able to come and live here. Like it's, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And I feel like a sense of responsibility with the show to pay it forward and to share that knowledge. So like Amen. as I say, I drink the American Kool Aid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, AI, does that excite you? Extremely, yeah. Extremely, extremely. extremely. <laughs> like from myself as a builder, I've been building for a long time, and I've always seen AI as like an extension to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like there's always that point. You're a creator. Where as I'm building something, or I'm solving a problem for myself. Most of the time, somebody else has got the same problem, and then I'll hit a wall, and I'll be like. A machine could do this so much better than I can. And that came from, I know I'm really strange. Like, I'm really strange, okay? So I'm sitting in my actuarial board exams in South Africa. You know, like, this is really weird. And there's a room full of us. And we've all been trained in maths and statistics. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, there's something fundamentally stupid about this situation. We are all sitting here with pencils and calculators and paper. And we're sitting doing these calculations and I remember at that point I had to learn like three and a half thousand formulae off by heart and I'm applying these formula and plugging these answers into a calculator and they're writing it on a paper this is dumb and stupid a computer can do this better than the room full of us together can do this why are computers <laughs> not doing this why are we doing this and no one else I believe in their room was thinking this stuff but I was like 
this just doesn't make any sense there's a better way and so I think my love with AI and it started a long time ago and I've always been fascinated by it and like I'm aware of like the dark side because like I've invested in stuff like um, small business like startup loans which you know create equality because of you know these issues in terms of credit and all these things and that women get biased and all these things I've been involved with this stuff for a very long time on the health stuff I've made some very very interesting investments like AI for blindness you know mm -hmm. like scanning the human eye in the end and it's been because I work hands-on with the founders it's been a fascinating journey building out that portfolio where I've really like questioned how is humanity better for this and like leaned into that and as a result I'm very 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 proud of like some of the companies that I'm involved with and then for example like I trained my own writing bot and like I'm obsessed because again I was an immigrant to the US and I was it's weird I was the top English student in South Africa you know like I always got 100% for English and I always got like you know like my teacher writing in my school report she's so brilliant in English she has the English trophy went to Canada wrote a thesis on Hamlet and so I was like I would think half decent at writing. I come to the US and I, I got coached by like this incredible, incredible attorney because like I was getting killed in deals, you know, like killed, like in terms of the writing side, you know, like in terms of explaining to people what, like what I was trying to convey, but I was conveying it in a South African way versus speaking American to Americans, which is actually really important if you're an immigrant. And so he kept saying to me like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. Like you're not speaking English. And I'm like, I'm speaking English. And it was very, very, very distressing. I'm living in San Francisco and I'm doing the best I can to build out this dream of mine. And my attorney who's been kind enough, like he's this career, very, very, very successful, talented attorney. And out of the goodness of his heart, he's mentoring me and he's like, this sucks. Like, I'm giving you an F because, you know, like he, he's like, he's been a professor and he's like, F, 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 F. So I was like, I've got to solve this, okay? Like, because if the people on the receiving end are, are getting these emails, they don't understand what I'm saying and I'm not making myself clear. So I was like, I need to find an AI tool that's going to help me. And so I had to train up this AI to become an extension of me. And now it's at the point where I plug what I'm writing in. The AI works its magic. I've trained it. Like I've worked very hard to train it. And you read it and you'll be like, I'll be like, okay, I wrote this. The AI wrote this. And you'll be like, wow, that is good. Like it is, it's, it's substantially better than anything I could have written. That's great. And so that's like the human and the machine working together. Yeah. And it's like, it's like almost like an enhancement tool. And like one of my companies is a cognitive augmentation company. And the idea that you could work with machines to improve yourself. We already do that. We have, you know, we have heart things. We have leg things. We have arm things. We have lung machines. We have, we already have all that stuff. You know, we have robots that perform surgery that are, you swallow in a pill and take a camera down into your stomach. And now we have suits that people with Parkinson's can wear and then it'll stop their tremors and implants in the brain that help people see that can't see. It's fantastic. It's and yes, there are also police robots that are terrifying that, you know, will soon carry some sort of a weaponized device that may not... Uh, that's just like a whole level of terror to me. There's also great beauty in it. It's that thing. It's that shadow and light. I feel like it is impossible for one to exist without the other. Some of utopia would be wonderful, but it seems like we have to have both. And 
like you can't know what Christ consciousness is until you know like Hitler consciousness. It's like the painters being, as little kids being taken to see the orphanages. Like you can't know one without knowing the other and that will inform you forever. Beautifully said, like it's so beautifully said. Like I remember I was just new to like Silicon Valley and that and um, I saw this autonomous tractor, de this demo day. Yeah. And I'm standing there in my high heels and my leather pants. And I'm like, I have to jump on this autonomous tractor. I have to, I have to. It was pure love, curiosity like you. I jump on this tractor and I'm flinging my hands. Around. Like I'm just like a child. I'm just like, cause I love robots. I love things that fly. I love, like, I, I can't even describe it to you. Like any type of robot I want to play with. And, um, I put this thing on LinkedIn, I had a big LinkedIn following, and um, people were very disturbed. There were people who were very excited, and there were people who were very disturbed. And I, I have a big African following and big emerging markets following, and people were like, but you can't do this. Like, farming, Africans, farms, you know, they need to work on the farms. And I, I put this founder on a call with somebody who was going to be president of an African country who's a very close friend of mine. And it was fascinating because this person who's aspiring to be the president and he's grown up here in the US you know being trained at like big financial services companies gone great exposure to the US his attitude was like we canceling all these contracts with these old tractor companies that are just providing us with these like old school tractors we want to be the first African country that uses American autonomous tractors we don't want these Africans in the field doing this thing that they've been doing forever. We want to skill them up. We want them to learn to code. We want them to learn to build companies. We want to give ourselves an ability to actually get ahead of this versus constantly saying, well, agriculture will do things the old school way because this is the way it's done. And the founder, like this is a small startup at the time, it's not been acquired, but like it's a very small startup with a team of like very, very talented Silicon Valley engineers. <laughs> So my friend is like, can we buy 100,000 tractors? And the founder's like, we've got like two prototypes here and maybe a third one <laughs> working on it. And it was like the convergence of these two worlds because this aspiring leader was saying, we believe in like autonomous vehicles. We believe in AI. We believe in the future. We believe that humans can be empowered using the technology. Yeah. And then it was so interesting because the African response was like, like even in the emerging markets, because I, I spoke in another emerging markets government thing, and the prime minister was like, I, I want in, I want in, I want access to this, we want to pay for this, how do we get to the top of this list? And there were a lot of people who were like, this is so terrible, this is so sure. terrible. And it was just really interesting going back to your analogy of the light and the shadow. It's like, there's a good and there's a bad to all these things, and where do you find the balance? And, and it's about communion. It's about, again, I use that word all the time, but it's it's in all things, in all, in all spaces. And to that happened in America with uh, automated farming wiped out the family farm. Mm -hmm. And because there was no educating the family farm, mm -hmm how to work in symbiosis with the technology if they just one x the other out mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like that and it can be all right great now teach the farmers new skills and mm -hmm. it's just like the automotive business or anything else we fear change so desperately though what does that mean if i'm a second generation farmer third generation farmer what does it mean if now my cows are being milked by a machine i'm speaking out of my depth because i don't i'm not a farmer I don't know their plight. I know it hurt a lot of people. Mm. But I, I, I think it's because they weren't embraced along with it. They were discarded. 
that's the point I'm trying to make. It's like it's it's not about discarding human. It's about symbiosis. So well said. Like I drink almond milk, and this it comes from New York, and it's like the story on the back was like it was like the oldest dairy in New York, and she was a food scientist, and the two of them kind of partnered up, and they've got this very I can pull it out the fridge for you. This very beautiful story about how they came together, and he went from being a traditional dairy farm, like dairy and those things, into almond, and like it's a very 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 successful business, and I live and die by this almond milk. You have to have some. It's so good, and it's just really interesting because that's an example of business that did pivot and. It's got a tribe of people who are loyal to it. Like, as I say, we buy 12 milks at a time. I won't, it doesn't matter where I travel in the world, my milk goes with, with <laughs> me because it's so good. And it's just like such an incredible company to support. Yeah. And like more and more, I think as, as these opportunities arise and people are embraced, there are so many bigger opportunities. And as more and more people come online and people realize, oh wow, that's a really interesting company. I want to support it. We share the same values. Like, let me go above and beyond if need be. Like, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm very involved. I sit on the board of this um, sovereign wealth fund in Rwanda. It was a big honor to be chosen. And as a result of studying the portfolio, it was like cassava flour and all these companies that um, I wanted to test. I wanted to test the coffee, and and it was so interesting going on these journeys to understand these companies and realizing, oh, this in America can help this company here, or and the perfect convergence, as you say, communion of these two together. Mm -hmm. Like the world has become so connected, and I think we're not really at that stage yet. We, I'm speaking for myself, where you're like, oh wow, I can do so much more when I think about the fact that there are seven billion people out there and we are all connected now and we can all kind of do so much more together. And so when you were talking about like like um, these farmers and that, like there are many opportunities out there that I remember being pitched by a team out of Ireland and they were consolidating all like the farming communities using tech and it was an app and it was like a really 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 simple smart app in a way that I never even thought about and it was a very strong team the young team that was putting it together and they realized the problems because it was something like similar to what was happening in the US and I was like this team is going to succeed because they figured out that these farmers need their help and at the same time they need to work with these farmers and it was just the simplicity and power and beauty of what they'd created was something very, very valuable. I think they got a lot of business because people wanted to work with those farmers, whether it was restaurants, it was like the whole farm to table concept. Mm. There were a lot of people who would support them, but you actually needed to know they existed and you needed to actually be able to interact with them in a smart way. And we don't even know how things beget other things that you have to go through the journey. I've, uh, I had Matt Hundley on my show and he's a homesteader. And he was frustrated with the fact that, you know, a lot of farms around him were shutting down. He couldn't get farm to table. He didn't know where his food was coming from. He was not happy with GMO stuff and all that for himself and his soon-to-be growing family. So he studied homesteading. And he studied, instead of having a big yard that you have to mow every day, he turned it into a productive garden with fruits and vegetables. And he learned to, to live as a, with the land. And harvest the bugs to the land and not use pesticide and you know which creatures solve which problems you know possums that eat ticks that keep that would maybe make the the cow sick or the deer sick or whatever it is and becoming becoming that as a result of this other thing 
that's pivoting and growing and it's it's beautiful to see it, it and now he teaches other people how to do it that's the beautiful part like um, i've got this company that I invested in indonesia and the goal was to um farm to table you know like he one of the founders was the ceo was a farmer and so he had all the relationships with all these farmers around indonesia and then one of the founders like um they had pretty strong financial background and they realized the importance of like doing more of this kind of thing you're talking about and they built a very big business by means of just like rethinking farming and like rethinking the, that whole food chain from start to finish it's a big business and the bulk of these farmers are women no one's even aware of that and like it's a very 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 successful business by means of actually keeping things simple and going back to the simple way of like oh okay we all want clean food we want clean vegetables we want healthy food we don't want all this crap inside our inside inside our, our food and that so what this person's doing is just like cool i've been wanting to do that forever i keep talking about it because like in london i don't know if you remember they have like all these cute little gardens oh, yeah, and, yeah. and i keep sure. thinking i want to do that where do you do that in la because it's like such a cool thing to, to they do. are edible landscape artists so they create landscapes in your in your yard or on your land where you get to pick what percentage is edible that you get to harvest yeah and it's beautiful and there's fruit trees and there's you know berry bushes and there's edible plants and herbs and spices yeah it's having a lawn is a modern concept that that was not something that people did back in the day you know and so there's all this wasted land one of the things I love about Los Angeles that makes me so happy when I go on my walks is everywhere there's a fruit tree or, you know, there's lemons and there's avocados growing and there's uh, loquats and there's pomegranates and there's all this food everywhere, just, just random. Not even somebody put it in their yard, but it's just as you go. How beautiful. And then it always makes me sad when I see so much of it falling to the floor or to the, you know, the earth floor. It bums me out because I think, gosh, all this food. Mm-hmm. We are capable of, of so much. We don't give ourselves credit for. Remember who you are. <laughs> what, if, what if every yard was an edible, movable feast? What if the potential of that is is extraordinary and what power that gives a person if i can't afford to go to the grocery store because tomatoes have gone up then i'll buy a packet of seeds and i'll grow tomatoes and because it's a bounty and the earth just likes to give and give and give i have enough to give to my neighbors or to to put in big baskets and take it to the elderly lady down the street who maybe can't even get out to the grocery store The, the the potentiality is gorgeous of what we're capable of, but we don't remember that stuff. We don't remember who we are. Ugh, it makes me sad. You're very inspiring. And going back to earlier in our conversation, when you were asking about like, like how do like the, the world and how do I perceive it? You know, with all these problems and that. And I listen to you speak, and that inspires me. Like that's what motivates me to do what I do. It's like individuals like you who are like pursuing their dreams no matter how difficult it may be and you're like you're living your truth like you know your purpose you know what you're meant to be doing and and sharing these stories and like that was so meaningful and so inspiring i was like like all i need is for you to build a startup now in that space and i'd be like okay so my job is to fund you and then i get to smile that's the best part because 
it's not a difficult job when people live their purpose and people are like so committed to what they're doing. Like the way you were describing it, it's exquisite. It's absolutely, I can visually depict what you're describing. And the more things change, the more they ultimately stay the same. Like what you are saying is very simple and very powerful so and so sensible. And so I'm like, okay, where's the pitch deck? Can I have a pitch deck? Because I want to invest in what you're doing. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm a, you invest it. I, what I'm doing is just love. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's convincing, you know, the lady with the lemon tree that it's okay if somebody walks along and picks a lemon, that it's not going to end her life. The lemon tree will make another lemon. That change of perception and being that person to educate enough people to be able to, like, in a scalable way, be like, okay, like, there's actually so much to go around, like, there's, like, there's so much suffering, yet there doesn't need to be suffering. Like this morning, I was walking, my usual walk down to the beach. I do it every day. I feel so privileged. And there was a guy, homeless guy lying there, and it was super early. And he was like wrapped like in a way that it didn't look human. Like he, he, he was in a ball that it, I kept thinking because I've had neck issues and back issues. And I was like, that must be so extraordinarily uncomfortable for someone to lie like that. And then when you think about the beauty of what you are speaking about, like there is so much to go around. How do you solve for that? How do you solve mm -hmm. for the fact that just on this canal alone, there is so much food on these trees and it's falling down. And how do you solve for it? How do those people who need actually get it without it just going to waste, which is sad. It's very, very, very beautiful. Like you have a very, very big purpose. Like. This is said as somebody who sits and observes and knows exceptional when I see it. So <laughs> yeah, it's very kind. It's just remembering that one can be a lot. One can be a lot. I say that on the show all the time. It feels insurmountable. Mm -hmm. We are a planet of seven billion people, and every one of those people feel alone at some point or another. Mm -hmm. Sometimes for long periods of time, and uh, one person is a lot. It's that ripple. You throw the rock in the water. Does the rock just hit the water and that's that? No, look what it does. It ripples and it ripples and it ripples and it ripples and it just keeps going. It goes on forever. We just can't see the imperceptible parts, but it's still happening. It's like sound waves, all that stuff. You know, we're, we get light from places that existed billions of years ago. They don't even exist anymore and we're getting their light. Wow, that's cool, you know? That's cool, that's us. We're that light. Ugh. I love the way you incorporate science into your conversations in such a natural way. Cause it's just so beautiful. Cause I often, I don't feel like I get to have those conversations. Like often when I'm talking to people about science, it's very like we're talking about science. But going back to earlier in our conversation, science isn't everything we do. The way we are having this conversation and recording it, it all is. Science. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> love it. All right, I have taken so much of your time. Tell people how they might find you out in the big, big bad world. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the big bad world. So if you want to pitch me, like if you're a startup or a founder or somebody that wants to build a company, the easiest thing to do is to connect with me on LinkedIn and you can send me a message in terms of what you're up to because that gives me the opportunity to read more about you and what you're up to and what you're trying to build and I do read all those messages and so I'm doing my best to keep up with it. You could always drop me an email. Um, yes, I'm not perfect so I have not been as active in social media as I should have been because I've been working, building, which is what I would like to believe <laughs> has been 
what I should be doing. Um, you can find me on Instagram. You can email me. You can always email me. I do my best. Um, I can train founders. These are small things that I'm trying to start doing more of where um, when founders are looking for funding or looking to build something or um, I'm going to start putting out videos. It's like my thing where I'm going to start putting out oh, videos. Cool. And you can start watching these short videos in terms of oh, this is the truth that no one will tell you, but Elisa, because she loves me and she's on my side, is going to tell me what I must do and how I must do it. Love it. So I'm going to start putting those out okay. and I'll share them with you as well. Because like yesterday, my meditation teacher, who's an engineer, for example, um, he's building a really interesting meditation app and he's doing a really good job of it. And I was like, well, you need to send out an investor memo. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, every month you need to send out, send me an invest a monthly investor memo. And I'm going to give you these criteria of how you should do this and he's like um like okay and I was like you know what he wouldn't know that if I didn't tell him but the funny thing is as he's looking at those little categories which are not difficult I can share it with you too as you look at those categories you you're building in that way so that the business what you're doing your venture becomes self-sustaining and you're building something of value going back to equity that is valuable for you as the creator of it and I was like Okay, instead of just telling Jeremy, I should probably tell everybody because these are like life skills that everybody needs and nobody shares. And this is going back to what is in the book. I'm trying to equip people just like us with those life skills that I wish somebody had given me so much sooner. Because yeah. we don't we don't do these random things when we're building because we want to. We do them because we don't know any better. And so I'm happy to start sharing. I'm doing my I'm back to doing my my. A newsletter so people can subscribe for the newsletter i'll share all the links with you in there yeah and i'll put all links on heyhumanpodcast.com for sure like yeah. like my goal is to empower people it's like super important you inspire them i empower them and so um as you said communion yeah communion. i love that you come to the table and you see a great feast that is overflowing instead of empty plates Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> uh, what is your Instagram handle for people? I know you're on Twitter too. Do you know them off the top of your head? I'll share them with you. Uh, okay, I'll put them on heyhumanpodcast.com. Travel Style Edits is my Instagram. Travel Style Edit? Edits. Edits with an Edits. Addicts as in edicts? Like I'm addicted. Oh, addicts. Travel Style Addicts. So next time I come on your podcast, we're going to work on my American. <laughs> and we can do it like we can do it like line by line. Because oh, like, so I'm good. trying to, like my neighbors. I, said, I think you do great. I said one day down next door, she's like, um, where are you going? And I needed a sweater. It was really cold. So I said, I'm going to off sex. She's like, what sex? What sex? I'm like, off sex. She's like, no, you're going to say off sex. So, like, each time I'm learning something new. So, you have to correct me. We can do a podcast and you're teaching me to speak American. Amazing. So, I'll try it again. Travel style addicts. There you go. Was that better? That was perfect. You got it! <laughs> I'm becoming American. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. You're awesome. I mean, Thank you. that goes without saying. Thank you for listening, everybody. Be well. Take care of each other. Thank you, Alicia. Thank Yay. you. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.